Today we're taking a look at Mark chapter 4. And as we get into this text, this will bring up a lot of questions that many people have about the purpose of parables. And we'll talk about that. But let's start by reading the word. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat on it out in the lake, while all of the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some of it fell upon the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With this measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many other similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. As much as they could understand, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. 
There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, a little while back I said that I had come across one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. Well, I have to say that this is my absolute favorite passage of Jesus calming the storm. And I'm going to start with that. Everyone has the question put to them at some point, what is your favorite story of the Bible? For me, it is the calming of the storm by Jesus. And this is why, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it demonstrates conclusively in the New Testament that Jesus has the authority over all of nature. I mean, just think about it for a minute. In this passage, all Jesus had to do was wake up, yell at the storm, and it stopped. Jesus and through him the Holy Spirit have power over nature, and that power is absolute. But the other thing that strikes me about this story is the reaction of the disciples. Remember, at this point, his followers have been with him for a while, and they've seen his miracles. He's, he has healed the sick. Okay, He has, uh, he has exercised demons. And he has certainly started to show them uh, the absolute power of God in him. But here, once again, the disciples, in a moment of fear allow Satan to influence them, and they become afraid and seemingly forget everything that Jesus has been doing for them and fear for their lives. When they see the storm calmed, the Greek here is very clear. In fact, in the ancient Greek, when you repeated the word fear twice, that was like double fear. They were terrified. Why were they terrified? I think they were terrified and not pleased because they realized how powerful this man was who was sitting in the boat with them and that he has control over the natural universe. The other reason they were terrified gets back to my question I had a while back, which is, who was the Messiah for the people of the first century, at least the Jews? Here, again, I think they were terrified because they cannot get past the fact that they thought the Messiah was going to be a military ruler. A man like them raised up an army to fight their enemies, in this case Rome, reconquer uh, their lands, and establish or reestablish the throne of David. But here, we see a very different kind of Messiah starting to emerge. One who is not raising an army. Uh, or trying to take back the throne of David, or reestablish his his uh, kingdom in Jerusalem, and certainly not a man. This is a person who has some kind of absolute power over the natural world itself. And this is terrifying them because they cannot accept that this is the actual Messiah. Let's talk for a moment back to the beginning about the parables. This is a kind of a confusing thing for some Christians as they read the Bible to say, why does God speak in parables? Why does Jesus speak in parables? And even today, why, why does this happen? Um, and I think it's very important for a couple of reasons. First, I think 
when God communicates with large groups of people, I do believe he tries to communicate in the simplest and clearest way possible. But here's the rub. In this period, God is speaking to um, Jews in a essentially a third world country, even for the period, 2,000 years ago, who have their own culture, their own language, and their own approaches. Problem is, if you speak too specifically to just that culture, using just the kinds of, of words and, uh, and practices that only they would understand, well, those words will only go so far and for so long. Uh, if he only spoke in very specific Jewish terms to the people of Galilee, well, some of the people of Galilee certainly would have understood what he was saying, but it would have been lost on pretty much everyone else, at least literally. God, even in the Old Testament, speaks throughout a variety of literary ways. In fact, narrative speaking, that is kind of factual speaking of of events and persons and places and things, tends to almost be the minority in all of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. More often than not, God communicates with human beings through more abstract literary ways, poetry, prose, parable, analogy, metaphor. Why? Because telling a story that has a more general meaning is, first of all, a little easier to understand, and second of all, it's certainly easier to communicate with different kinds of people simultaneously. Jesus' story of the seed falling on the path is a perfect example of this. Jesus is not being literal here, at least not in the beginning, and this is, again, a very important part about how you interpret the Bible. Yes, it should be taken literally. You should assume that all of the text could be literal, and I always emphasize that with my students. You must always first assume that it could be literal. Don't dismiss the literal piece. But if you can't find a literal interpretation, in this case the the seed on the path, then consider the alternative, which could be a more abstract analogy. And that's exactly what a parable is. In fact, Jesus even admits that he speaks in parables to people, and most of what he says is in parable. Here, the parable of the seed is the story of the word of God being spread throughout the world. And I think I would challenge the listener of this podcast to examine themselves. Which seed are you? Are you the seed that fell on fertile ground and is producing great fruit in your life? And fruit, I mean evidence that you are saved and you have a mature faith and that that faith is active in this world. Do you see evidence that people are listening to you or learning from you or that the gospel is being spread? Do you see evidence at church that through teaching or uh, through service that people are coming to know Jesus better and developing a deeper faith? Are people being baptized? Are people being taught the word? Are they telling people about the word? Essentially, are you reproducing yourself? That's really, I think, the measure of fruit that we're talking about in this parable. But While many of us want to be the hero of the Bible stories, often we're not. At least not always. There are times in my life when I have not been the seed falling on fertile soil. In fact, it's happened quite a bit, I have to admit, humbly, that often I am the seed that has fallen among the thorn bushes. And I have let the worries and anxieties and fear of my life and of the world get the best of me. I like to tell people that fear and faith are two opposite ends of a spectrum. 
One is not the other, at least not the kind of fear we're talking here, which is the dread or despair that comes with thinking that everything is not going to be okay. That's the fear I'm talking about. That is incompatible with true faith in Jesus, which says you have to believe that you are going to be okay. At least in the long term, you are going to be okay, and you are going to live in paradise with your creator, and things are going to work out. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. But many of us are not that seed that falls on fertile soil, and we need to try to be. We need to reconcile ourselves with God. We need to put down our fear and cast our anxieties into God's hands and let him worry about the problems of our life, our job, our children, our relationships. The next piece here is about why he speaks in parables to to certain people. And that gets in this part about, well, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. I want to recall 1 Corinthians, which says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is very important for people to understand, and it's hard to understand sometimes, that The true understanding of what the word means and who God is, is mysterious. There's no doubt about that. But it can be understood at some level. But that understanding does not come from more intellectually sound arguments. It doesn't come from any kind of argument, really. It doesn't come from a longer list of proof or a better speech. This is something I personally uh, wrestled with early in my life. That salvation was somehow based on some kind of intellectual approach. If I only kind of had a better set of proof to tell people about Jesus, they would believe. That's not how it works. It's the opposite. And it's exactly the opposite, just like works doesn't produce faith and salvation. It's faith and salvation that produces works. Here, a humble and loving heart that's interested in understanding the word will understand the word. Not, if I understand these proofs better, I will somehow get more faith. So I really want to drive that home, and that's biblical. That's what Jesus says. It is somewhat mysterious to understand how this works. You just have to understand it does. If I truly seek God with a humble heart and believe there's at least a chance that what he says is true and that he's real, He will reveal more to me. He will help me understand more about his word and about truth. And that should, in most cases, produce a little more faith. And once you get a little more faith, he will reveal to you a little more of his word, and it will make more sense. Eventually, you should be able to understand most, if not all, of the parables of the Bible at some level. But it might take time for you to get there. It takes patience. It takes faith, and it takes an open and loving heart. But to those who reject God, and who don't want to believe, and whose hearts are hardened, the seed that fell upon the rocky path, it's those hearts that won't understand these parables. They won't understand the truth of God. And it's a very unfortunate, but their heart is not allowing them to do so, and God says that that's an important part of this effort. It kind of takes two to tango in that way. The next is the lamp on the stand. This is very straightforward. It's essentially saying, if you understand the word, it should be a light 
and you should be a light and people should be able to tell that you have that light. It really should be no surprise to your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbors that you're a Christian. They should be seeing your fruit and it should be obvious. And if it's not, it's another time I would say to challenge yourself, challenge the listener to examine yourself and say, am I a light on a hill or am I hiding my light under a basket or a bed? This next piece about the parable of the growing seed, the repeat, what the kingdom uh, of God is like, this is another kind of example of what is happening in the first century. Again, the Jews of the first century thought that the kingdom would come in a, in a rush, like a rushing wind. All of a sudden, this, this man would rise up, become king of the Jews again, and they would slay their enemies, kingdom returns. That's not what's happening. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear throughout his entire ministry that the new kingdom of God on earth that Jesus is ushering in is the exact opposite. It's subtle. It's quiet. It's patient. It's not hidden, but it's certainly um, it's certainly more subtle than any kind of sudden military coup that might happen. The seed itself is being spread throughout the world carefully, patiently, almost unknowingly by many people, and it's starting to grow. It's starting to sprout. And here again is this concept of how does that seed grow? <laughs> again, Your job as a human being is to tell people the gospel and the word of God and to understand it at whatever level you can. But you are not responsible for saving a single person on this earth. Let me repeat that. Billy Graham, the Pope, uh, even the disciples themselves, they didn't save a single person ever in their lives. What they did was obey God to share the gospel with others and allow the Holy Spirit to work on their souls. It is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone who saves human beings. And some of the pressure is now off to think, oh, I I didn't come up with a good enough argument to convince that person to give their life to Jesus. That was never your goal. Your goal was to just tell them about Jesus and be patient and be a good model and show them your fruit. It's the Holy Spirit that works on them. And at the end of the day, that's an interaction that's supernatural and between them and God. The seed sprouts and grows, and this this point that no one knows how is, is well taken. Sometimes it's hard to see how or why certain people do come to a faith in Jesus. But again, that's because it's a supernatural activity that is stimulated and activated by the Holy Spirit. We just have to play our part and be patient about it. So, to sum up here, looking at a few little things, you know, this idea of the abundance of the fruit and the agricultural yield to a person living in this time, a hundred times over of fruit production would be a huge number. The agricultural practices of the time, you would only produce maybe 10 to 20 percent or 10 to 20 times. Uh, the yield. Uh, so this would be a huge number. This, this kind of implies the fruit you'll produce as an active, thriving Christian will be amazing, and it will change the world. One, two, three people at a time, and that will reproduce. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time as we look at Mark chapter 5.